a Bible or a phone, some device, you'll be looking at the text with us. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 3. We'll actually be looking at the last couple of verses of chapter 2, but primarily in 1 John chapter 3. If you haven't been with us um, before or very often, kind of our, our, our strategy, our MO here is we, we just preach through books of the Bible chapter by chapter, working our way over the course of several weeks or months, um, however long is necessary to just kind of work our way through it, believing that all of God's Word is, is useful and beneficial, that it, that it encourages, that it edifies, that it corrects, um, that it forces us to preach passages we wouldn't typically preach um, to deal with topics we wouldn't typically deal with. And it's, it's honestly, it's good to know that when your particular struggle or sin comes up in a passage, that it wasn't that someone added you to the pastor, but it was just the next passage up. Um, and then we try to, we go back and forth um, as much as we can between the Old Testament and New Testament, wanting to give um, the whole counsel of Scripture. And so, we've been in First John um, for the last several weeks, and First John is a letter written from the Apostle John to a group of churches, not to one specific church, but it's a circular letter. It was meant to be passed around to different churches in the area around Ephesus. Um, John was an elder in the church in Ephesus, and so he's writing. And what has happened is false teachers have moved um, into some of the churches. Um, some of the churches have had folks actually pick up and leave from within the church. And so the folks are concerned. They're saying, hey, what, wait a second, what's, what's going on? Like, why are people leaving the church? Why are they, why are they teaching that we need some new knowledge, some new understanding? Um, Gnosticism is beginning to, to develop. And so as John is just kind of lovingly, pastorally, um, wanting to give them assurance of the faith, reminding them of the truths that they first knew, and that he's helping them to combat the false teachers. And so his letter, when we tend to think about things, we, we tend to write kind of in a linear fashion, right? Like once I've given you A and then I've given you B and it equals C, we, we've done our job. And what John is doing is he's writing more in a, kind of a, a circular rhetorical fashion. And so he's given us so far in just the first two chapters kind of three tests, three um, criteria to know whether we should have assurance of our salvation, right? And he's given us a social test. Do we love the brothers and sisters in the body? He's given us a doctrinal test. Do we believe the right things? And he's given us a moral test. Like, do we obey the commands of God? And he's laid those out initially in more of just kind of a, hey, that's what they are. And now we're circling back again, and we're hitting the same test. We're just going to go into apply them differently um, and apply them in, in deeper and more concise ways. And so this morning, um, we're going back to the moral test um, of obedience. And our, do we have reason to be assured of our salvation as we look at this? And so if you'll pick up, we're going to read the last two verses of chapter 28. Sorry, of chapter 2, which is verse 28 um, and 29. And then we'll be into chapter 3. And now, little children, abide in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. 
The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. And by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother." So we, we live in an area where the gospel is just kind of assumed, where, where we assume that people know Jesus, that they love Jesus, that they think about Jesus, um, where it's super common to throw um, blessings and prayer in Jesus onto Facebook, where it's the expectation when you're around someone that you're, you, know, you hear people say, have a blessed day. Like there's just, there's so much kind of Jesus-ish talk. And what happens is, is often then we have a lower view of Jesus, right? Because it, it's, it's become so common and commonplace that, that our view of him and what, was, what he has done on our behalf and what we needed him for just feels like low, like that we don't really need him. And so often what, what we find is in order to get someone to hear the gospel or to see Jesus as, as glorious or worthy, you have to deconstruct the fact that they don't actually maybe know it or have trusted it or have heard it clearly. Um, and so you've, you've got to like kind of start with, are you sure you know Jesus, right? Do you, do you really, have you seen him clearly? Have you really heard the gospel? Because I know you know the name and I know you know some things to throw out there that sound right, but do you actually know him. And so where we're going to start this morning may feel a little counterintuitive, but we're going to start with, with the negative. And, and that's this, like, how do you think about sin this morning? All right, so you're in church, and you're thinking, okay, sin, right, it's kind of one of those religious topics. But honestly, if you were to think about just the idea of sin this morning, or even more specifically your sin, right, where does your mind go? Is sin seen as somewhat of a nuisance, right? Like this fly that you're continuing to swat around a picnic in the summer that like bothers you, but it's not like killing you? You know, it's just, I wish I could get over that. Or do you see it, um, you know, like, hey, I avoid the big public ones. So as far as you know, I'm good, but actually inside I'm, I'm quite bound up by the sins that no one's aware of. Or in the culture we live in currently, there's really been more of an attempt to kind of redefine it and just to say there really isn't sin, right? Like, you do you, right? You don't judge me, I won't judge you, like, you do you. And, and so it, I have a personality quirk, right? 
or that's how God's wired me. And if he wanted me to be different, he wouldn't have made me that way, right? And what we're doing is we're kind of negating the effect of sin. Maybe, um, maybe we're just, we're flippant. Or this morning, is there, this, is, there, is there something about you that you immediately, when the word sin was mentioned, specific sin comes to mind and you're, your palms are sweating and you're feeling a little ashamed and you're getting a little uncomfortable and you're thinking, picked the wrong morning to show up, right? Like, right? Right, where, where are you this morning when you think about sin? Because I want us to look now at verse 4, at what, what John says here. He says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So he just kind of defines it and says, look, here's what it is. Sin is lawlessness. And what, what John is saying is this, is that sin is rebellion. And we tend to think of sin as like just missing the mark or I didn't do as good as I could have or I could have done a little more. And what John is saying is, is sin is, is defiant, outright rebellion to God's known, revealed will. It's us looking at God and saying, yeah, I don't think so. Now, typically, we don't, we don't carry that sort of like attitude, right, and that sort of affront to God because we've been numbed to it, right? We, we begin to think that sin isn't as big of a deal. And yet we understand it as we look at what our enemy, what Satan did initially in the garden was when he went to Adam and Eve, he basically said, look, there's some things that you can ex- like access and get that God's holding out on you. Like if you, if you circumvent him, there's, there's good there. And you won't die, right? Like he's lying to you. God's not good is the, is, is the claim. And so even though they had been given a direct expectation of what God has told them to do and to avoid, the sin is in rebelling and saying, I don't, I don't think God's right about that, and I'm not sure that he's good and for me, that ultimately all of our sin can be boiled down to that. It's, it's us saying, God, I don't trust that you're good, or God, I don't think you're, you're for me, or God, I think there's something I can obtain if I circumvent you, right? If I don't do what you ask, I might actually get something better than you. And so John just says, look, we need to understand that those who sin, those who keep on sinning, right, which, which is all of us, <laughs> that it's lawlessness. It's not just a quirk of personality. It is defiant rebellion. Look now at verse 6. So no one who abides in him, right, no one who remains in Jesus keeps on sinning, right? No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Look at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, right, this is continuous action here, is actually, I mean, John doesn't, he just cuts to the chase, is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So he says, look, when we're going to look at at action, and remember, he is talking specifically to the church about false teachers who have come in, and the false teachers have been saying, hey, look, what, it's what you know that matters, and so what you do is less consequential, and what John is saying is, look, right belief matters tremendously, but so does right action. Like that we have to have both of them. And that if we're continuing to sin, then we're not following Jesus. We're not of Jesus. We're of the devil. Church, what John is reminding us is not just in the false teachers, but in the fact that we have an enemy. 
And our enemy is deceptive, and he's a liar, and he's wanting to turn you away from God, not, not to God. And he's going to do it in whatever clever way he can. And so for some, it's going to be big, like sins of the flesh. Others, it's going to be in religious ways. But he's going to attack you and deceive you in, in getting you not to trust God, Right? And so if, if you don't have much of a religious background and, and, and sin is, is relative and, and morals are kind of out the window, then it may just be, hey, who is God to tell me how I can live my life? But it may be that, it, that if you have a more religious upbringing and background, that it's going to be, hey, you can just be righteous on your own. And you get bound up in religion and in not trusting Jesus because I can do it. And if I can do it, then you can do it. And if I can do it and you're not doing it, then I'm better than you. And so we, we become judgmental. We become hypocrites, right? And we become self-righteous. So the deceiver is telling us God's, he's not good. He's holding out. We know what's best for us, not him. He, he'll tell us this, you're not going to die. Like God's not going to punish you over that. Like that's archaic thinking. Like, don't think like that. That's, we, we've, we've advanced so far beyond that. God doesn't really care about our, our actions. And then as soon as you begin to think, wait, I feel some conviction. Maybe God does care about this. What does our enemy do? He whispers to you, oh, you're too far gone. You go back now, he'll kill you. Right where he was just whispering, it's no big deal. God doesn't care about this. The Spirit brings conviction, and then it quickly it switches to Oh yeah, you are too dirty. You're too gone. You've done too much. God hates you. Right, that we have an enemy who is lying to us, looking to deceive us. This morning, some of you would say, look, I know my life has this stuff that's shameful in it. Others of you, the sin this morning is more pride that you're like, I don't have any of that stuff. Look at my rules and look at my regulations and look at my manufactured righteousness and I've done it and why can't you? And yet, in both, we've been deceived into not trusting God for what we need. And if you're not sure, if your righteousness is false, right, if it's, if it's manufactured, here's, here's gonna be a good indicator. When God, when something hard happens in life or you don't get what you think you deserve, and you look at him and you say, you owed me. I've not done all this stuff. Look at my life. It's, it's, it's just the way it's supposed to be. I've done it. You owe me, right? And the devil swoops in and says, told you he wasn't good. You should be angry. You can't trust him. John wants the church to know that they have folks who are actively attempting to deceive them and that they are following the lead of the deceiver, of the liar, of Satan, who is trying to deceive us. And so why we want to start here this morning is we can't hear good news unless we see sin rightly, as being sufficient, as being big, as being the fact that it is against a holy God. If we don't see sin rightly, then we don't know that we need to be rescued. So uh, when we were living in, in Yemen... There was a day I was out. Um, I don't remember where I was. Carmen decided to mop uh, the kitchen. 
in our, our little apartment in Yemen. And the things are just set up different. Most of the rooms, especially any room where there's water, would have like a drain just right there in the floor. And so you would open it, and then you would just mop everything into this, to this drain. And so Carmen, you know, pulls this plastic cover out of the middle of the, the kitchen floor, and she starts mopping. So I'm not there, right? But a few minutes later, I get a panicked phone call, like screaming, you got to get home now. I've unleashed like the pit of hell, right? As she was mopping and took that off and starts mopping water down, like all manner of roaches, insects, and everything just start like, I mean, like, like the stuff of nightmares, like not one or two, like just like bur- being birthed out of this thing. So y'all know Carmen, she's super chill, easygoing, you know, happy-go-lucky. Not that day, right? I mean, she's like, I grab the bleach and I'm pouring the bleach on it and they keep coming. So she's like, I run out and I'm like, I'm shutting the door and I'm throwing towels under it. And she's like, and I'm ready to set it on fire. But what do, what do we need to do? I mean, and, and like just fear and panic of like, I know exactly what's in there and they're all going to die. And if they're not going to die, then we're not ever coming home again. Right? It's so like, you know, I've got to come home and wage battle, right? Um, and, and still, like I asked her about this this morning, and she almost like actually like, kind of like twitched a little bit with that memory, like stuff of just nightmares, right? Because in that moment, she knew what was there. She saw it rightly as being like disgusting, as being somewhere it shouldn't be, and wanted to put an end to it. Church, most of us don't view sin the same way, right? We look at it as like this pet, as this like little thing that we can have that we're like, oh, look at it, it's so cute, right? It's like Jude seeing a snake and going, can I hold it, right? Like, now most adults don't look at a a snake. Most adults don't look at it and say, oh, can I hold it? Like they're looking to remove themselves from the situation because they have enough knowledge to know it could be harmful. If we're not careful our sin, our pet sin becomes this thing that we're like, isn't it cute? Right? It would never hurt me. It's just, I just take it out and play with it every once in a while. I just, I just take it out because it makes me feel good or it, it puts me at peace or it puts me at ease. Because we don't see that it's like from the pit of hell, right? Coming out to destroy us, to cause us harm, to make us uncomfortable, to separate us from a holy God. So church, this morning, how do we see sin? Do we see sin rightly as something that affects us and that is meant to be destroyed? If we do, then there's good news, right? And the gospel is not just this philosophy that we're like, hey, this will make you have a better life now. It'll it'll make it easier to just kind of navigate things. It is a proclamation. It is good news shouted from the rooftops that sin has been destroyed, that the power of it has been broken, and that we are loved and freed and accepted. And it's not saying, hey, if you do these things, you'll get this. It's saying it's been done. That this sin that wanted to enslave you and entrap you and destroy you has met its match in Jesus through his life and his death and his resurrection. So look now at verse 28 where we started. John's writing, he says this, now little children, right? Remember, he's just being pastoral. Abide in him, remain in Jesus, 
so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Right? So he's now setting up this scene of, hey, he has come, and now we're, in the, we're waiting for him to come back. And as we wait for him to come back, hey, you know he's coming. Right? You almost get this, this like teenager scene here, right? Of teenagers at home, parents are gone. What's taking place? And John's just saying, your parents are coming. Right? So in that moment, are you fearful and in shame and got to clean some things up? Or are you saying, ring them, right? That's good. We're glad. Because he's saying, look, abide, remain in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and that we wouldn't shrink from him in shame at his coming. This morning, if you knew that he was stepping through history, splitting the sky today, would there be confidence that you've been walking with him or would there be shame, right, because of what's going on in your heart and in your life right now? Right, that's what John is saying. We have to be vigilant because we have an enemy looking to make us think that our sin isn't that big of a deal. And look at where he starts then. Look at verse 1. So see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. He says, like, the love of God has been lavished upon us. How has it been lavished upon us? In the fact that as broken rebel sinners deserving of hell and damnation and to be away from God forever, God, in the right time, in the right setting, sends Jesus, born of a virgin, to walk and to live the life we were meant to, trusting God, obedient in all ways and with no sin, so that when he goes to the cross on our behalf, he's innocent. And then our sins are put upon him, and by his stripes we're healed. By his death, he defeats sin, Satan. He satisfies the wrath of God towards sinners. And then he proves that he is who he claimed to be, and that the promises of Scripture are true because he is resurrected. And he's alive today. And so he now says, look, in Christ, we have access to God. We have forgiveness of sin. We have hope and we have healing. We have been redeemed and freed. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us prayer. And he is coming back for us. He has lavished love upon rebels. And he's done it in Christ. Look then at verse, the end of verse 1 in chapter 2. Or sorry, and verse 2. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Um, He earlier said that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him, and we shall see him as he is. He says, then we become children of God. And this is one of those areas, right, especially in our region of the country, where the assumption is, is we're all God's children. And Scripture doesn't teach that. Listen, we are all God's children in one way, that he is our creator. We are his children because he is our creator. He is father. But Scripture then describes us as we're either children of wrath, Ephesians 2, right? Verse 10 of this chapter tells us that if we're not children of God, we're children of the devil, And in John chapter 1, in his gospel, he writes this. Verse 12. 
So in verse 11, he says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So we become children of God in salvation, right? That he brings us into his family. And so we're no longer children of wrath. We're no longer children of the devil. We're children of God. We're brought into his family, right? He doesn't just say, ah, you're all right, right? Sneak in the back way. He makes us sons and daughters. He talks of us as, as family, beloved. He then continues. Not only has he lavished his love upon us in Christ, he's made his family. Look at verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So listen, if you don't see sin significantly this morning, when he says that he came to take away sins, you're like, okay, it's nice. If you see sin as the beast that it is looking to destroy you, and it says he came to take away sins, then Jesus is high and elevated and exalted and worthy of worship. Look now at verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Right? Rebellion, a lack of trust in him, that he showed up to free us from sin to take away sins, to destroy the works of the devil. The good news has been proclaimed. Jesus won. At the cross, he defeated sin and Satan and the devil. He broke its power. He loved us. He counteracts the lies of the evil one that says, God doesn't love you. He can never accept you. He doesn't need you. And Jesus comes and says, look, look at how much I love you. Like I, I, I died for you. I was humiliated and broken and spit upon for you. He comes to expose the lies of the evil one, to give us eyes to see sin rightly. He gives us a new identity. He changes the family that we're a part of. Listen, you notice in none of this is he saying, all right, so go do a bunch of things so that you'll get this. He says God has done this. This is where it starts, is that Jesus has come to free us, to rescue us, to make us his, to show his power, that the lies of the evil one, right, that he loses, that Christ's power is stronger. And so what John is saying is, look, our motivation for holiness and for obedience is this, that Jesus has come, right? And in that, he's equipped us. And the second is this, is because he's coming, we have the motivation that we need because he's coming back. And we desire to know him and to please him. Look down at verse 9. Because he's come, it says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. Now listen, commentators are not sure what the this, this seed is. There's disagreement as to whether it's the word of God, whether it's the Holy Spirit, or it's simply like the divine, divine nature, right? All of which are kind of saying the same thing, that God implants something in us that allows us to be transformed, that we have eyes to see him rightly, we have eyes to see the word rightly, we have eyes to see sin rightly, and the lies of the evil one have been exposed. In Luke 9 and, and, and in the other Gospels, we, there was a moment called the transfiguration, 
And in the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John go up with Jesus on the mountaintop. And for a moment, they see Jesus not like shackled by human flesh. They see his glory. And they're just like, hey, so we're good. We'll just stay here. This is awesome. It's part of the reason that we see such boldness and confidence in Peter, right? In John, because they've, the curtain got pulled back for a second and they saw who he was and what we will be, right? He's telling them this, that part of the motivation for our purity, for our holiness, for our obedience is, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. And so everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. He's giving us the motivation of saying, know him. You're in the family. Please him. Look at what he's done. He's, he's made you his and he's rescued you. It's important to note verses 6 through 10. It'd be super easy to think that what John is calling us to is sinless perfection. Listen to how he says it. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, righteous as he is. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this, it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John is not saying that if you sin post-salvation, then it means that your salvation wasn't real or genuine. All of the verbs here are like continual, right? Like they, it's, it's an ongoing act. And so what John is saying is that if you continue to sin, if you are owned by sin, if you are marked by sin, if you have the character and the habit of sin, we need, we need to talk, Because you're marked as children of the devil, not as children of God. He's not saying that isolated acts of particular sin that happen then mean that your salvation is not good or not not sufficient, okay? We know this, right? Because in 1 John, in in chapter 1, that he says, in verse 8, if we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves in the truth that's not in us. He says, like, if you claim not to have sin, you're a liar, and you don't understand this. Because the fact is, is when we see Jesus clearly, we see how deep our, our sinful nature really went. That we're not just concerned with cutting off the, the big sins, but we're understanding that, man, the way that I desire and the way that I think and the way that I dream, like, these things, right, are sinful too. And, and as we see that, that we go to work letting the Spirit root those things out to transform us and to make us into the image of Jesus. So this is not an expectation of perfection and of holiness, but it's are you marked by habitual sin? John's saying, we, we got to talk about this. Are you occasionally going to sin? Yeah. 
Look at chapter 1 again. Verse 9. So if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we haven't sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And then verse 1 of chapter 2 says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. He's saying, look, this helps explain what he's given us. That when you know Jesus, the fun, carefree, joy, ignorance of sin is demolished. You can't just willy-nilly continue to sin and to think, yeah, God's okay with it. That you're cut, you're convicted. That you know that there's a war at play. You know that there's a struggle at play. You don't feel the same freedom to just sin however you want. That you're drawn to repentance. So listen, there can be struggle. There can be back and forth. It's not that if you commit the same sin twice that it's like, I don't know Jesus, right? But it's are we, are we being convicted of our sin and fighting for holiness and for righteousness, for that to be rooted out of us, for us to trust Jesus in it and not to trust our nature that would have told us to do it however we wanted. It helps us understand 1 John 1, 7 and 9. And it, and it forces us to ask the question of this, how do we see the Father? Right, because if you think as you're raising children, your hope is that when they're teenagers and they, they've got some more freedom and flexibility and they're not going to be under your care all the time, that if they go out and do something stupid, that they won't compound it by lying to you. That they won't compound it by hearing their friends say, you can't tell your parents that. They'll kill you. That they'll say, my parents are not going to like this, but they're for me. They're for my good. And if I, if I own this, we can be restored. Church, this morning, when you are aware of your sin, do you think God is looking to strike you down? Or do you know that he has offered repentance? Right? That he's offered forgiveness and says you have an advocate. Walk in righteousness. Walk in holiness. That's been empowered by the Spirit of God and planted in you because Jesus has done the work on your behalf for you. The false teachers were saying sin just wasn't that big of a deal. Our culture says the same thing. John is saying when we sin, we have an advocate. And we have a process to to walk in in holiness and righteousness and cleanliness. So uh, Paul will say, so work out your salvation with fear and trembling in Philippians 1. It's why in in 2 Corinthians 3, he says, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. It's not an immediate thing. It's a process of learning to trust God, of of having our sin made aware to us and realizing that we want it transformed, we want it gone. We want to walk in the freedom of Christ. And we do these things not to gain God's attention, his approval, it's not to gain salvation. We do it because we have salvation, that he has made us now children of God. And so because we're going to go meet him, he's going to come for us, then let's prepare for it. Like, let's walk in, in holiness. Paul will say we set our mind on the things of above in Colossians. It's why we read Scripture. It's why we fight sin. It's why we repent. It's why we walk together. It's to root these things out. To look more like Christ. To be transformed. 
one degree to the next, one degree to the next, as long as we have breath. So John is ending this by saying, I want you to repent of your sins. I want you to trust Jesus. I want you to know you have an enemy who's looking to deceive you and to tell you that sin's not that big of a deal and that that will take you away. So if you hate sin, if you war against sin, then have assurance that you know Jesus. And if sin's not that big of a deal, then take stock. Have I heard from the Father? So he's going to, in the, in the next couple of weeks, he's going to take us through not just the moral test again. He's going to walk us through the social test of how we care for brothers and sisters. He's going to take us through another doctrinal test in all of this, looking to give you assurance that, that you can know Jesus and you can know your eternity is secure in him, that it's in his hands, not in yours. So listen, the, the band's going to come back up here in just a moment. Um, we're just going to ask you to remain seated for a couple moments. The band will kind of direct you um, as to when to stand. Um, we just, we just want to take moments to reflect because we believe that the Spirit is alive and well, like that Jesus has given Him to us to minister to us. And so as, as Scripture has, has maybe pressed on you, as the Spirit has moved this morning, that you would take some moments to pray, to confess, to ask the Spirit to guide and to direct to thank the Lord for clarity he's given you this morning. Um, and then the, the band will direct us to stand and, and we'll end worshiping through song. There'll be some men and women in the back if you need someone to pray with or talk to, you're, you're welcome to move back there. Um, but let me pray for us.